Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another Alpha Bunga Bunga Reading Club. Uh, today, we are discussing Elie Zaretsky's Psychoanalysis and the Spirit of Capitalism, which was published as a standalone article in 2008, but then was republished uh, in an updated form in the book Political Freud, which came out in 2015. And that's the version that we're discussing. And that's the version that we have uploaded as a PDF to the Patreon. Uh, just to tell you a little bit about the book. We're only discussing that introductory chapter, um, but uh, just to place it in the context, I guess, of the book. It's uh, it, the book is a, a series of essays about um, how Freud seemingly became obsolete as the new left of uh, the 1960s uh, landed some blows on it. But it really uh, kind of tries to talk about how relevant really Freud was and how relevant psychoanalysis was over the course of the 20th century, accompanying the 20th century's uh, transformations as it went along. I'll have to uh, excuse myself that the upstairs neighbors are uh, kind of drilling and sawing and hammering. Um, so if that kind of messes up the audio quality here, I'm sorry. I, I ple did plead with them to, to not do it now, but you know, what can you do? Um, did you did you drop Silvio's name when you were pleading? You, you, you should have done. You should have gone up there in your, in your podcast t-shirt and, and said, do you know who I am? Because we're always wearing Alpha Bunga no. Bunga t-shirts. Yeah. Well, I, I am right now. Yeah. It's you. super ego, Alex. We can't hear anything at all. It's your super ego kind of trying to repress your, um, whatever you're talking about and claiming and theorizing about more recently. Mm, I'm not upstairs. sure exactly that's how it works. But anyway, um, but yeah, the upstairs is my super ego making me feel guilty. I don't know why. Um, anyway, so it's about whether... Uh, or discusses the, supposedly the obsolescence of Freud. And, and it's an obsolescence which is not due to its intellectual merits, uh, argues Zaretsky, but due to social change, uh, namely consumer capitalism, the growth of pharmaceuticals and other sort of treatments for mental illness, the politics of gender and sexuality, and the changing meaning of private life. All of these things have uh, radically changed our societies and makes it very different from the society in which Freud was working in. That is not to say necessarily that Freud is now obsolete or irrelevant himself. Um, in fact, we're going to discuss that a little bit as we go along. Um, the book rather could be seen, I are, I would think it, and, and this essay in a way is as well, a sort of restatement of the relevance of Freud's critical insights. Uh, it's probably it's probably worth just saying Freud himself is obsolete in that he is he is still dead. I mean, it's just, just important to make that, that mm -hmm. point. Yeah, thank you. I visited the Freud Museum when I was in London, actually, which I'd never done when I actually lived in London. Kind of disappointing. Kind of disappointing. Why? I, it just didn't really bring his thought to life. I mean, it was cool to see, you know, his... It's his, a museum uh, of his house, Alex. How is it supposed to bring his thought to life? Would you want, you, like, you, waxworks of, like, the, what, the unconscious and the superego? No, you're expecting a load of cocaine and, and you could really kind of <laughs> get into it, sit, sit on the couch, smoke a cigar, but... Yeah, right. I don't know. It just didn't bring the kind of radicalness of his thought kind of, you know, it, it didn't present that very much. Um, and it, I don't know, it didn't do enough kind of provide enough rich cultural context in, in which, from which he emerged and what he was doing in London. I don't know. Maybe, he maybe I was expecting He more. was kicked out by the Nazis to well, London. I know it's what the story like is. <laughs> I know what I know what happened. You don't need to tell I don't know, me. But then, you. why would you expect so much from the museum of his house for the very few years that he spent in London? Well, because it's the only. It's a major electronics museum, which was made. By, him, no, away. no, but it was it was a museum which was set up by his daughter Anna Freud to honor his legacy. Make money. So 
I don't think so. It was to honor his legacy. And so, you know, you'd expect to do maybe slightly better job. Also, they had some stuff on the pandemic, which I thought was kind of a bit lame. And then they also like made me wear a mask after the the mask (laughs) restrictions had been lifted and and they were really strict about it, which I thought was a bit annoying. Um, I was actually started to, I I debated, I put it out there about whether Freud would have been in favor of that or not. But anyway, that we're not going to get into that. Um, There's actually an episode coming out next week on uh, lockdown and COVID restrictions. So uh, you can look forward to that. We'll, we'll talk more about that kind of thing there. Um, But for now, um, let's get into the uh, let's get into this essay, um, which is about the spirit of capitalism and about psychoanalysis and how they mutually impacted upon each other. Guys, what did you think of it to start off? One of the best things I've read in a long time. It's um, superb, I thought. I mean, in terms of being able to um, it's so lucid and covers so much ground. And the element that I particularly appreciate is that it talks about, it doesn't just talk about how a theory kind, you know, how society changes. Um, so that the context within which a theory develops no longer exists, but also how the theory itself is transformed in response to those changes. Um, and not only, and that it developed, you know, how new, how the original categories are kind of inflected in new ways, new insights are generated, and the tension between how far these insights kind of um, allow one to understand that society, much they're simply direct products of that society and have no um, distance or critical grip. And so the way in which he talks about the changes, and I, again, and I think the changes are rendered very well, the emergence of um, a new kind of private life, a new kind of consumerism organized around private life, the shift of the family from a production unit to a consumption unit, um, all of that is brilliant. Yeah, Good. I mean, I, I I think you guys really, really liked it a lot. I, I It didn't... I think there are sometimes you read. You feel threatened um, by it. Oh, for goodness sake. <laughs> sometimes you read something and you're like, this is a material account of changes in ideas. And it, I, and it just makes, it just clarifies everything. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I still thought it was really, really good, but it wasn't the one thing that I thought, ah, right, I now fully understand the relationship between material changes and psychoanalysis. Um, despite Tell us about that, your mother. Despite that, it was uh, it had a number of extremely interesting points, um, and so yeah, still I, I think maybe I was go- going at it with the wrong expectation that I thought it would be that this kind of it'd been bigged up by by some people, and I thought this is going to be a history of the 20th century, which is going to explain all the changes in capitalism and all the changes in the spirit thereof. No, but I think what it does is it it, it melds two things uh which you know there's a whole spirit of capitalism sort of discussion and research that's gone around that and uh you know then there's the whole body of psychoanalysis and the history of psychoanalysis and bringing those two together i think is fascinating so um maybe maybe it's because of like my background and kind of having studied that spirit of capitalism stuff and being interested in it um kind of for me it was like wow a bit mind-blowing when i read it uh, well, when I read the whole book last year, and then I suggested this year that we do it for uh, for a reading club. Um, I also like so to we, say that there will, no, have, there will be no, there will be no motherfucking jokes. There will be no motherfucking jokes in this episode. Yeah. It is taboo. It is the ultimate taboo. <laughs> so we're not going to be talking about that. Okay, should we get started properly? Um, I think we just need to say 
about the fact that what that I, I think, am the ego. Alex is a super ego, and George is the id of Bunga. Is that right? <laughs> probably. I think that's probably right. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, think, I think listeners can make their own minds up. Um, so to start off, we're going to start talking about more in the beginning, more of the spirit of capitalism stuff, and then we're going to move on to the psychoanalysis stuff. Um, obviously, splitting them up quite artificially because, of course, the essay brings them very closely together. Um, just to start off, and and maybe also for listeners who maybe didn't read it or or only had a chance to kind of skim it, what are the three phases of capitalism that Zaretsky describes here? Um, I don't think it's not meant to be an exhaustive kind of periodization of capitalism, but uh, you, as concerns what he's interested in here of capitalism since Freud, um, what are those periods and what are the institutional features of it and what are its accompanying spirits? Just to set us off, Phil. Well, he talks about how Freud, Freudian theory develops in, um, at the kind of cusp of the end of the 19th century in that area of um, the high point, I suppose, of liberal capitalism, or in fact, maybe even when liberal capitalism is already beginning to transition um, to something else. Um, and then with the First World War and the reorganization of capitalism that comes in its wake, you get a much more... Um, hierarchical organized capitalism based around large bureaucracies large corporations and what have you and i mean you know which will be familiar to or is usually described as fordist and then in the aftermath of the second world war in the 60s you get the shift to the shift to the new kind of capitalism or the emergence of a new kind of capitalism more consumer oriented capitalism which is more familiar to us today yeah and i mean just to add something which isn't exactly in the piece but it's been argued that in a way, Freud um, is able to glimpse what he and develop this sort of meta psychological theory because he's observing the crisis of bourgeois man uh, rather than necessarily being um, rather than being necessarily the peak of, of of kind of the bourgeois man, right? So he, he he's already witnessing a sort of crisis in subjectivity uh, then at the, at the end of nineteenth century and the beginning of the twentieth century, and so kind of owl of Minerva like he's able to to sort of grasp that, which is kind of interesting um, and maybe something worth bearing in mind, um, so that we don't build up some idea of um, this kind of self confident but repressed bourgeois man kind of already in the uh, in, in the kind of the 1910s for example that was something that was already being threatened by by mass society um so so to move us on and and to maybe think a little bit about what the spirit of capitalism actually is what is this notion when we say a, what is a spirit of capitalism so actually what is it and what is the purpose of a spirit of capitalism both yeah, kind of so I, firstly ideal ideologically in the real world like what does it actually do and also what is the use of in talking about it does it help us kind of understand things yeah i mean so the the term originally comes from german sociologist max weber in 1905 protestant ethic and spirit of capitalism and i guess the uh, initial like the initial impetus between between uh, between behind what weber was trying to do was essentially a critique of of marxism and a kind of simple um economistic view of society um, and I think that's kind of why I'm a little bit skeptical of the ideas of, of spirit of capitalism. I think you have to be a little bit careful um, with this idea to, in certain readings or certain cruder readings, because then it's essentially a sort of um, idealistic. Um, here is here is a kind of a spirit, a, not a spirit of the age, but a set of ideas which then Im impel people to um, to act in a certain way. And this changes um 
economic behavior and changes um consumption production yeah. in, in certain ways so that, i mean that's the that's the like initial um that's the birth of the spirit if you want to put it that way but i mean i, I obviously weber's uh, to the extent that Weber sets himself up against Marxism, it's against a very vulgar economistic reading of Marx um, and not uh, the real Marx, I would argue. So, I mean, that's that's part of the problem that, that Weber's idealism comes to be the mirror image of the kind of crude materialism that maybe some Marxists advocated, where history is just driven forward by material changes and that ideas have no role to play. Um, well, look, I mean, I don't, you know, I think it's a it's a useful without attributing to it the kind of the causal power which uh, max weber wanted to attribute to it it is a useful way of organizing a particular kind of complex of ideas and attitudes and cultural behaviors and outlooks that um, were very important in shaping a whole the rise of bourgeois civilization itself so you know i don't think that it requires us to accept the entirety of um that zaretsky's analysis requires us to accept the entirety of what's being put forward um and i think it's very no, difficult as sure. well to talk you know if you're going to talk at this scale at this historic scale of dividing up the last 150 years into different phases then you need to talk in broad general terms and so it's difficult to avoid if not words like spirit of capitalism concepts that are similar and i what, think the protestant do you mean like what? What was the vibe? What was the what was the mood? Well, kind of, yeah. What was, the, what was, a, little what was bit. a crack? Of, but, but, of it's, no, but it's also but, it, but it's also spe it's also specifically about what gives people meaning. And I think Zaretsky is quite clear on this, and it's very useful the way he puts it. That it's not capitalism, and why you might adhere to capitalism or why you might participate in society isn't just for purely instrumental reasons, like oh, I'm going to work and to make money, but that there's certain things which motivate action, give meaning to social life. And that's what the spirit of capitalism does. It's a kind of meaning machine. Uh, and, and that, of course, changes, right? You know, so today you might have entrepreneurialism as the kind of thing that, that especially um, motivates people or kind of makes, allows them to make sense of, of things, whereas before it was just about like accumulation and saving. You know, to take the classic example described by, uh, you know, described by Weber, you know, the Protestant. Yeah, but this Calvinist is, and ethic. the really important part, and this I think is why Zaretsky is so, why Zaretsky is so good, is he says that psychoanalysis became the Calvinism of its own time. So that it, um, it legitimated the transition from one era to another, and particularly that it became instrumental to Keynesian um, or political and social organization after the Second World War, and that it performed the same kinds of functions that the Protestant ethic performed in an earlier era, of the way in which it kind of legitimated private life, the way in, in which it reoriented um, people's attitudes towards economic activity. And that seems to me um, the capacity to be kind of self-reflexive, rather than just to use the theory as kind of a template that's outside of these social developments, but to be able to show how the theory is interwoven with those social developments, that not only takes a great deal of kind of analytical skill, but also intellectual confidence as well, that, you know, is very rare, I think, among, um, among scholars and academics. I think that's the best bit of the, of the essay is essentially sort of saying, well, if you had Calvinism, if you had this idea of being in the elect, so you 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 work hard and and the meaning that that has um, is is not in necessarily in, in the um, economic activity itself, but it's a way to show that you're that you're chosen, that you're preordained to be to be going to heaven. And that's, you know, that's pretty good. That's something you want to strive towards to show how that 
moves uh, or how psychoanalysis inflects that kind of primary way that people understand what economic activity is about. It's very, yeah, I mean, it, it's certainly, um, it's quite a kind of striking idea to say, well, okay, if you put psychoanalysis as the spirit of capitalism, what, what would that explain? How, where did it come from? And what does that mean about how we um, how we understand our, our economic role, how we understand our place in society, that, me- that uh, meaning machine, as you said, Alex. And it also serves as a useful reminder, I think, and, and sometimes we tend to forget this, um, as to how influential Freudian notions were in the early 20th century. And indeed, they remain so, albeit in kind of different forms, until around 1970. Uh, so, I think nowadays we are so immersed in kind of like therapeutic language, which in many ways is is a very serious departure from kind of Freudianism. But we we forget how um, how hot these things were, how how like Freud was invited to do things to, to discuss everywhere, dinner parties. I mean, especially amongst kind of uh, you know bourgeoisie, but but even more broadly than that, he was it was just everywhere Freudianism. That was the that was the hot thing at the yeah. time, and that's why it could have yeah. potentially the the, the impact that. Or the role that that uh, Zaretsky ascribes to it in providing this being the new Calvinism, but so let's let's d- delve a little bit more deeply into what that actually is. What is psychoanalysis' contribution to, well, freeing people from the sort of iron cage of Puritan responsibility that um, had obtained in the late nineteenth century? What does it do? Yeah. So I think this is a this is a, a a really good good question and a good sort of way to to frame it. So this idea of the iron cage or <clears throat> the steel hard casing, um, which is how um, how Weber described the um, Protestant ethic, this was he called it specifically a steel hard casing because it has two aspects: it has a protective and a limiting aspect, and this is really important because psychoanalysis is then the removal not just of barriers but also of those protective <clears throat> ways that we have of understanding ourselves, understanding our role in society. So this kind of idea of repression as essentially a protective mechanism that we, we apply to things that are too painful to think about, but it also limits freedom. So that's, I think, a nice description of the sort of freedom that psychoanalysis gives us is that it is quite frightening and vertigo-inducing because at one and the same time, you have this increase in understanding, but that's partly through the removal of protective um, mechanisms and ways of the people have of constraining themselves for, for uh, essentially for, for safety. Mm. Yeah, for and kind of a move, a move on from the sort of anality of uh, of the kind of nineteenth century man, right? Um, controlling and uh, you know holding tight to to what they have and accumulating, um, and instead a turn towards I think like to personal life. And I think Zarsky makes this point that um, there's this creation of a personal sense of personal autonomy, which isn't just the sense of, um, you know, moral autonomy, but of uh, a yeah, personal focus, life undetermined by necessarily oh, your social the focus role. On the, um, the focus on in, the internal aspect of Freudianism and its emphasis on intimate kind of um, loving and sexual relations obviously gives a new kind of uh, a new role. It kind of reconceptualizes the role of the family in new terms in a new context rather than in the more kind of uh, religiously sanctioned terms inherited from the Protestant ethic. I mean, that's part of Zaretsky's point, right? As well as um, dealing, as well as kind of uh, reconceptualizing the nature of instinct. So rather than instinct as something, you know, it's understood in a different way and it doesn't just, its repression shouldn't just produce guilt, but that it can be understood 
and um, integrated in a different way. Yeah, and so obviously desire starts to be kind of set free. One of the things that he repeats, it's a term he uses a couple of times, is defamiliarization or defamiliarization, um, which is something that's happening, I guess, in the early part of in the first two, three decades of the 20th century. And that psychoanalysis plays a big role in doing that. So I guess, I mean, how I understood that was that the family, of course, is, is the building block of capitalism, of competitive capitalism in the 19th century in the small family-owned firm. And as you have a transition towards large integrated structures in more impersonal uh, economic structures like the corporation, and people start to participate in those, then, uh, you know, i.e., you know, as managers or as workers, um, that you be, your, your kind of whole sense of subjectivity is no longer determined by your place in the family, I think, and then becomes more sort of set free and you become more of a social being, I think. Is that right? Yeah, I think it's a, it's um, kind of not to get ahead of ourselves too much, but it is a new understanding of, of autonomy and identity. You have this, the movement from what were called or uh, what might traditionally be ascribed identities. So your who you are is determined by your, your, role within the family with your role within society within a more or less hierarchical system you know it's long-term change but the more that that's freed up the more that there are other things which need to step in to give people identity and to give people meaning and to allow them to understand their their position their role their their function so it's it's i guess that's that's one question that i have here though is that kind of classic chicken and egg kind of question which is not the question is should you eat chicken and egg in the same meal which actually try and think of one try and think of a meal that has both chicken and egg and people yes, don't do there's it a, it's, there's it's, a japanese donburi a, a bowl of i'm not going to answer that fucking go on george so which which came first the chicken or the egg like which came first the material changes or the um ideological uh, in fact even in framing in that way it probably gives away what i would would tend to say but like what comes first the material changes in production and 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 familial structures or the things which which justify them or the things which um which essentially come out of that that sort of new set of power relations within the family and and things like this is what he's saying it's not just about justification it becomes part of justification in a new context but its origin is not justification its origin is um understanding in fact um the psychological aspects of this particular kind of society in a way that hitherto wasn't possible and and even thinking thinking psychologically which is the contribution as as well because not that psychology didn't exist before freud but freud radically transforms it and almost creates this notion or brings to the public this notion of interiority of of a kind of internal life which is distinct from from the public life um one one just as a bit of an aside but i think today we often discuss kind of post-modernity or whatever is people being kind of cut free from any sort of ascribed identities and people being able to kind of self-determine what they want to be, whether it's like a furry or a whatever. I always like, uh, <laughs> I always go back to furry as my example. It's I don't interesting know why. that you said that first. <laughs> mm. uh, anyway, yeah. Too much into yes. it. Um, but it, 
but the fact is, is that, you know, this isn't just something that happens in post-modernity, like as of 1970, suddenly you're not determined anymore by your career and blah, blah, blah. And it's all self-chosen, but you know, this is the experience of modernity. Um, and, you know, so this is, this is the kind of thrill of modernity that you're kind of set free as an individual. And certainly from the 20th century, from the beginning of the 20th century onwards, but arguably even earlier than that, um, you know, that's a, uh, that's a major thing. I think he even mentions the novels of Baudelaire or something as a, as, as a kind of case in point. So yeah, and I think to no, point I think, out I that this, this is just setting a clear disjuncture between like, oh, post-modernity, you're all set free as individuals, mm-hmm. but before you were all rooted and grounded in communities and other ascribed identities is a, a, a false dichotomy. No, I, yeah, I agree. I think just to bring in some other some kind of classic 19th century ideas that you, you, you do have a real, like the, the boundaries or like the, the, the kind of foundations, I guess it would be of like what the individual is or what we are radically change with, you know, you have Freudianism, Darwinism and Marxism. You have this idea that we are actually, you know, we are actually just animals that changes massively the parameters of what we, um, of what we can, of how we can understand ourselves. And then there's this, you know, science of society, which also allows this complex thing as such as history to be, to be understood and graphed. So it's, I mean, it's a, it's a, I think that is important to say that it's not just a postmodern thing that that's, you know, core to modernity and the changing understandings of like what people are, what humans are. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's worth saying also that Freud probably more than anything kind of maybe even understood himself as an anthropologist. And actually that was a fascinating thing. That was one very cool thing about the Freud Museum, if I can uh, just say this, is that it was filled with statues of like both from like Greek and Roman times, but from African civilizations, African tribes, and um, that was whatever. Freud, that was Freud's private collection, right? That, that was his private collection. But his book, he, but his his library there is all full of um, stuff about different civilizations. And obviously, he writes like Totem and Taboo, which is probably like the most kind of, uh, I guess, most obviously anthropological text of his. But he saw himself as kind of creating a science of 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 man, of trying to understand what humans are in a kind of biological as well as a social and historical sense. So um, anyway, that's something which is kind of worth bearing in mind. Um, just to, just to um, kind of round this little bit out before we delve more deeply into psychoanalysis, um, uh, two things. One, like we've already discussed about this transformation and move towards um, a more organizational capitalism, uh, more organized, systematic, integrated. But Zaretsky points out that at the same time as this was happening, you had psychoanalysis having an impact in loosening the economic vice, liberating relations between the sexes, and enhancing the sense of individual subjectivity. How do we understand that? Because it seems, I think, maybe like an apparent paradox, right? That you have people much more structured into big units, right? And especially in the workplace, at the same time as they have more of a sense of individuality. Is that a paradox? No, because the point was, at least according to him, is that the family, the role of the family changes. So it's no longer a kind of a property owning unit or a property distributing unit in the way that it would have been, you know, as George mentioned in the kind of um, family owned firm. And I suppose before, you know, you could also say other kind of social strata would have probably treated the family in a very similar way, but that the growth of industry, the growth of new kind of uh, organizations opens up the family as a space for more, um, for giving more personal, yeah, more space for personal life. So I don't think it's not a, the two things go together if on, if the relationship is understood properly. Yeah. I mean, I have to, I have to say that that, that point about the family firm, that was, that was Alex's, but, um, 
thank you for thank you for attributing it to me i do i do appreciate that i mean i think there's also another another element as well which is there is it's not it's not necessarily contradictory to have an increased um economic ordering and then maybe even you know you can see that as a counterbalance or as a as a kind of a contradiction within the liberal idea of freedom that then you have an inc- a, a necessity for individuals to feel some sort of ability to choose relations or to choose identities or to have some sort of freedom and control outside of that more systemic system- systematic integrated economic system so i think it's you know you can sort of see that there are these two two levels of um of freedom which which are not necessarily um i'm not saying it's a, you know straightforward displacement but um you know that's i don't think it's would necessarily have to be um a paradox All right. So maybe uh, changing tack a little bit, because we've been talking about changes in capitalism and changing in the spirits of capitalism. But maybe we should talk a little bit about the history of psychoanalysis, which is something that uh, Zaretsky does kind of changing course about midway through the essay. Um, and let's start talking about that by discussing how, psychoanal- how psychoanalysis changed post-war. Um, and what, what does it shift then also tell us about the practice of psychoanalysis then? So think about kind of, I guess, 1950s psychoanalysis. What was it like then? Well, I don't know firsthand. Um, I should, I should confess, but according the, to Zaretsky. Yeah. I'm just saying, you know, you've got to be honest about these things and say, you know, if I'm talking about history before I was born, then it's, it's not, it's not my experience. It's, it's at least secondhand oh, anyway. Today. <laughs> I'm, I'm quite tired. So, so you become coffee, extra so. pedantic? Jesus. It's well, no, it's like the, the cut to the chase. As against the tiredness. Um, I've lost my train of thought now, but I did have a good point. And it was something to do with, oh yeah, the influence, I guess, of um, of mass or the spectrum of kind of mass society and like how you, how a psychoanalysis would move from being something which is relatively more, um, more elite or high, high bourgeois um, to something which is, is is becoming more of a, an internal part of mass culture or at least in incipiently um and that's kind of an interesting development because i think it shows the already the influence that that freudianism that psychoanalysis that this that these i guess various psychological views with freudianism as kind of the avant-garde within those have on this developing um mass culture through a whole range of things such as you know take film for example i think there's you can see how some of those seeds are sown and then um that's the change that then psychoanalysis um responds to i don't know if any of you remember in the first season of mad men they had a psychoanalyst um, I, yes great yeah, they dropped yes. Her. yeah they dropped a german her from, woman or something right yes like, so she has this kind of clipped and kind of Germanic accent, and you know, it's kind of suggested that she's a Jewish refugee of some kind, and she's always and she's always in conflict with Don Draper and his buddies, and it's interesting because they dropped that, you know, so they clearly were experimenting with whether or not they could explore some of these things through psychoanalysis, you know, and famously, I can't remember his name now, but the guy who did Mad Men was um, a guy who came from The Sopranos. He cut his teeth on The Sopranos show, but they decided they couldn't. They couldn't because they dropped her um, by the second season, I think. So it took me back to this. And what's interesting about, um, so he talks, you know, he talks about the way in which Freudianism was integrated into the new structures um, 
of the post-war state and the post-war society and particularly advertising. Um, so the thing that we associate with kind of the um, ways in which desire was elicited in order to generate markets for the vast new kind of consumption possibilities um, that expanded in the aftermath of the Second World War, that Freudianism played a role in that. And this I thought was great, you know, and he even kind of, you know, I mean, the role that psychoanalysts played in the early CIA um, in drawing up kind of psychological profiles of America's enemies, famously psychoanalytic profiles of Hitler and of various kind of Nazis and Nazi war criminals. Um, all of this was, um, I thought, you know, uh, it was a fascinating insight into the way in which kind of um, Freudianism became a way of legitimating a certain kind of um, American post-war order. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you said that because it sets up some what I was about to say, which is that, I mean, in that Mad Men bit, and it's kind of very early on, I think, in the first season, you know, this German woman comes in and she's talking about the death drive. Well, actually, kind of, that sounds French. Anyway, whatever. But she's talking about the death drive. <laughs> um, and that kind of scares off the, the ad execs. They're like, wow, this is like some weird, scary, crazy Freudian yeah. shit, right? And that's important. And it's important. And I think it's, I, I only realized now that it was actually, if it was deliberate, it's extremely well observed. Because... As Zaretsky mentions in early on in the, in the essay, is that there's this tension within psychoanalysis between a kind of perhaps a more conformist understanding of oh, 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 according to which you know people therapy provide allows people to adapt to what is ultimately an unfree society, and there's a radical interpretation which maybe ends up becoming a bit more sect-like because you're holding on to these very important theoretical and meta-theoretical insights, but which then doesn't really allow you to, um, you know, treat people to have, make them adaptable adapt, subjects yeah. adapted to the, to the modern world. Yeah. And that moment there of that woman talking about the death drive is a bit like, no, no, we're not interested in that psychoanalysis. We're interested in the psychoanalysis, which allows yeah. people to just function in 1950s America. Right. Yeah, it's a great point because he can explain also the way in which the way in which the that kind of attempt to preserve a certain insight in the face of changes that um, it's unable to control necessarily has to take the form of a sect. And the parallels to um, post-war Marxism obviously are, you know, um, yeah extremely kind of apposite because that's essentially the only kind of um you know i mean not to get too much into it but you know that's essentially what trotskyism is the attempt to preserve the kind of the insights of um of classical marxism from the first half of the 20th century the latter half of the 19th century in the context of stalinism and cold war america that it inev inevitably take it has to take the form of a sect and there's no other way that its insights remain I think just just to kind of round this this point off the like we live in a we live in an, an advertising a marketing society and so it is a practical it's a practical vindication of one part the non-sect part of psychoanalysis i think the like i think society today is pretty unimaginable without that kind of cr cruder more manipulative um more limited view of of kind of post post-Freudian, like watered down, you know, don't, don't talk about death drive when you're trying to sell, uh, trying to sell apples, um, not apples, like whatever, but don't talk about <laughs> when you're trying to sell anything. Fact, this is a terrible example. <laughs> like, yeah, but no, it's still good. Yeah. Hungry for apples. Good slogan. Apple computers maybe, but yeah. Okay. Um, anyhow, my point is just, it is like, it's a practical um, vindication. Like this, this is the, this is the society that we live in, in the, in the shadow of this kind of, Bowdlerized, watered down Freudianism.
Yeah. And, and so getting on to that, because, um, and you can take, uh, you can hold images of 1950s America in your head. And I think it really makes, uh, it brings to life, I guess, what was happening with psychoanalysis then, uh, which is something that Zaretsky obviously discusses, which is, that I guess, the development of ego psychology um, and some an associated thing, which is the maturity ethic. So what is that exactly? Because that seems to be, um, I mean, it's not the kind of conflicted and contradictory subject um, filled with like repression and the, the the kind of upsurge of the id, which the, the ego tries to control and uh, these upsurges of aggression, all this kind of conflictual stuff that is the, the kind of nucleus, I think, of, of Freud's thought that somehow isn't really there that present then in, in kind of the the psychoanalysis that becomes very popular in the 1950s. Yeah, well, he says the the new left destroys it effectively. And so, well, that, but, but this is before then. This is before the new left. So I'm thinking about the 1950s. No, well, but he says it's. I mean, he says the maturity specifically says the maturity ethic is destroyed by the new left. Um, but also, I mean, and this is again what is so impressive about the essay. And I, I mean, I keep on talking about this, but it's you know he doesn't just say that it was you know that the theory was kind of um, subverted or demolished. He shows how one component of the theory of Freudian ideas, which was the emphasis on the instinctual was put in you know was um put into conflict with another idea which was the maturity ethic so the idea of responsible autonomous adult and adult um agency and um the ego controlling those urges and so you know that i and it's the emphasis on one side against the other that it is how he interprets the new left through the prism of psychoanalysis and the kind of psychoanalysis that they brought to bear. And I think it's, it's a brilliant account because he never chooses an easy path. It would be easy for him to say, oh, you know, this was just kind of junking everything or overthrowing it. He shows how it laid the ground for its own supersession in the process of the development of new um, identities and new social movements. Yeah, I mean, actually, if I can make a shout out to a book, which I read right recently, and, uh, you know, as brilliant as political Freud is, I think this is maybe even better. Um, maybe at some point in the future, we'll, we'll do a reading club on it. But um, Russell Jacobi's Social Amnesia, which similarly provides a sort of history of psychoanalysis, but is much more polemical in critiquing what um, what happened. And if you're interested in kind of this idea of how ego, ego psychology comes to supplant uh, what seems like a much more radical and challenging Freudian uh, understanding, then uh, then definitely w- worth checking out that book. Um, to, to move, I guess, to move forward into the 1960s and to the way that the maturity ethic was challenged by the new left, um, I guess we should ask, what, what was what, what did the new left bring to bear? What was its critique of that kind of um, kind of conformist psychoanalysis? So it's not directly answering your question, but I think it's in some ways more interesting um, because. I, this this really made me think about the about contemporary views of education like wh- where have kind of some of the some of these conflicts been displaced to well it's it's essentially understanding children because they can't speak uh, on their own behalf so you have to, so you can model different versions of, of their behavior and do do various things like that so the idea would be that it's actually a kind of romanticism so this Rousseauian idea that you like the, what you want to do when you're teaching is not to not to um, discipline the students, not to provide any external uh, knowledge, but instead to allow them spontaneously to discover 
views, knowledge, innate knowledge even that's that's within them. So this kind of quote unquote progressive education, which you see um, all across Britain, Europe, America and elsewhere, is this is this idea that you have um, that you don't the individual is essentially self self-sufficient in one sense that there's nothing no uh, alteration is required in order for them to um to be socialized to be a um a functioning thanks. and successful and valid member of society Thank, thanks for that extraordinarily unhelpful digression george so the when he's talking about so he says you know like that um he talks about i mean i guess what struck me was also towards the end of the chapter and this answers alex's question directly rather than indirectly and in a rambling and digressive fashion <laughs> Basically, the psycho. Well, we'll, we'll, see, we'll see what people think is more interesting. Let's no. see. Let's hear what you have to the say. The psycho. The psychoanalysts lose their confidence. You know, they lose, and he gives the examples of famous psychoanalysts, including what's his face, the Benjamin Spock, um, who feel that they're effectively repressing women patients. So women patients are coming to them with various neuroses, and they're kind of applying kind of classical Freudian categories, and then they realize that they'd simply they simply don't fit the experience of women trying to um, develop public roles for themselves in public lives in the context of a new capitalism where these opportunities are more open to them, where there's a shift from the family wage to um, two families with two wage earners. Um, and they lose, you know, they're unable to, they're unable to integrate this new experience. And so they basically lose the faith um, and they flip. And the other element of that also is, and this is again done really well, where they, um, their focus, the 60s focus on expressiveness ends up validating, in his words at least, in Zaretsky's view, validating narcissism. Whereas it was seen as a, as a problem but in the Freudian, previous in the Freudian um, view, it becomes something which is seen as healthy um, and is obviously the source of so many of our problems today. Yeah, yeah I mean, though, though he does to... discuss later in the book that, uh, just to kind of bring this in because it's useful, that the, the new left was not focused on the kind of secondary narcissism, which we understand kind of as a, uh, you know, as a sort of positive kind of take on, on your own self-absorption, but uh, but the kind of uh, the primary narcissism, which is your kind of a bit of your oneness with the world and your relational aspects. And that I think is important because that's what comes to bear in the, in the new, in the kind of new left critique, because the new left is oriented, I th you know, in, in two directions in its critique. One, as regards the kind of psychoanalytic component to, you know, the maturity ethic and all the conformist and, and kind of, um, compliant sort of forms of, uh, of of thinking about the self that dominated in the 1960s right this sort of ego psychology but then at the other at the other element it's kind of it's driven towards attacking the a kind of vulgar uh, economistic Marxism and placing emphasis on subjectivity and on the, and, the, and on the subjective element in even in a historical change right so that's it's kind of an attack on on Stalinism in a way and that emphasis on the subjective element by the new left, uh, tries to kind of recreate a certain romantic conception of things, right? It it it, it critiques the kind of deadening rationalization of society, um, more turned towards the self and the, and the self and self expression, um, and that you know the impact of that seemed to have seemed to do away with the vestiges of the old repressive society that Freud was working in, I think. Yeah, so just just to link this back, so I think my point about Rousseau and Romanticism then laid the ground for Alex's intervention there. I mean, I would I would say, 
but the this point about rationalization i mean i think it's just worth going back a little bit to weber to to like it's all about different sorts of authority this is weber's idea which one famous book puts in um, kind of counterposes to the marxist idea of alienation it's trying to understand what happens to to man under bourgeois society so you have this movement from a traditional or a charismatic form of authority to a rational legal one so this is all about bureaucracy and and rules and this is constraining as much as it's uh, a move forward it's an it's an increase in in reason in society it's still very it's still very constraining and um, the bureaucratic world, which is which is increasingly built up, is one that that has its own very real um, very real limitations and and restrictions. So that there is clear that you can have a, a very legitimate critique of that. Of course, the problem with a lot of well, not to generalize across the whole of the new left, but some of the um, some of the responses to this were essentially uh, like critiques. Of, like think about Marcuse and One Dimensional Man, like these kind of in ends up being quite a an anti-political kind of critique of consumerism through a kind of psychoanalytic um no not a, yeah a kind of that frankfurt school um or franklin school as some people have have redefined it um synthesis of of marx and freud why franklin school this is um what a famous american anti-marxist um called it in the book on american marxism i believe Obviously, it is, it, is, it is Frankfurt, but because they didn't know what they were talking about. No, oh. um, they <laughs> okay. made they just made an error. Um, right, I think, I think that's true. Um, so, I mean, I think one of the, yeah. So, I think it's interesting the way you put it, George. Is that you know, in some ways, the um, kind of that rationalization and that the whole spirit of capitalism that accompanies that, uh, in a way, does lead to a more rational society, but it still feels very repressive. And so, the new left turns its guns on that sort of repression. What's interesting, and and here, like we should refer back to Zaretsky, is this idea that, you know, how much can you, how much can you get rid of repression, basically? Because, you know, like Freud, like in Civilization and in, in its discontents, he talks about how there's a certain amount of necessary repression. Like there's necessary, you need to repress instincts to function civilization and civilization imposes these costs on the subject. Freud is relatively skeptical about the ability to get beyond that in a way that I guess kind of Marxist and like the kind of humanist element of Marxist thought believes that maybe you can get beyond that. But, you know, that that's a that's a question maybe for later. But what is interesting about the new left is that it seems to, and, and Zaretsky says this, is that they, um, the new left wanted to release the instincts instead of sublimating them as Freud uh, thought you had to do to you know channel those drives and channel the desire to into desire for for other things. Um, whereas for the new left, it was just like yeah, let the id run right. And of course, you can see that in the kind of crazier extremes of of what was happening in the counterculture. Um, what do we? How do we think? Of, what do we think about Zaretsky's interpretation of that? And where do we think his sympathies lie? So, what, what would the would the question be? How if we overcome repression? Because um, I think that's yeah. that's what you were sort of asking. At the well, start. yeah, actually, whether Zaretsky thinks it's right that um, you know you can just whether you can overcome repression, whether you should, whether that can be done by just releasing the aid onto the world or or, or not. Yeah, I mean, I I was going to make this point earlier, but actually, the way that you framed it there made me made me think this is a good point to to put it or a good place to to raise it. And this might or might not be right, but it just it feels to me like the current therapeutic aspects of culture are like are a direct step on or a kind of inversion of of freudianism that you couldn't have had 
that without the without the the, the Freudian uh, moment, as it were, because now you have instead of trying to overcome repression or or work through it, the idea is that whatever it is that you think you might be repressing, if you like, if you say it, if you share it um, more publicly, the better. Then that is the way that you. Um, you kind of sublimate it. I don't know if that would even be the right word. I don't think so. You kind either. of no. Yeah, I mean, but that's that's the. I would say that's the kind of the social like the social response accepts this idea of repression and that it's bad, and that the solution is to um, be as open as possible. And that obviously has its own yeah. like its own problems. But, but I think that's in a, where and we and are. It's in a very superficial, and it's repression. a very superficial and not narcissistic way. It's a kind of indulgence narcissism, and it lacks the real deep questioning that Freud demanded. Um, and that's, I think, part of the part of the difference It's that um, a lot of the kind of neo-Freudianism or post-Freudianism that that comes, um, you know, from the 40s, 50s onwards, you know, and through to today, uh, it, it's a very kind of shallow, a shallow conception of, of, of the of the self, actually, um, and not a very contradictory one, like as, as if, if you just say what you're feeling and, and you don't, uh, you know, you just talk about your feelings, then uh, kind of you have a, a certain harmony of the self and that's uh, radically different to the continually conflictual subject that that freud um tried to characterize um just to, just round this out I, well two two more questions firstly and this is a question that zaretsky asks in his essay and so we should try to answer it um is that he talks about th this moment um where really referring to kind of psychoanalysis role in transforming the spirit of capitalism and the spirit of capitalism's own or capitalism's own transformations impact on psychoanalysis. He asks, does this moment pretend like Calvinism, a higher form of social organization, or does it pretend an increasing antinomianism, anime, and the decline of leadership? He argues, as Retsky argues, much depends on the evolution of the new social movements, such as feminism and gay liberation, which supplanted yeah, I say, psychoanalysis. I have to say, I didn't like this part because it seemed to me... Um you know, like almost verging on a rhetorical question. It's very clear from the preceding discussion what his views are, but he recoils in the final instant because he's unwilling to, um, you know, he's unwilling to kind of uh, criticize gay liberation and feminism. Yeah, I agree. Or at least he doesn't know how to. With He doesn't know how to criticize them without sacrificing um, what he sees as their gains. And this is the this is his difficulty. So he kind of leaves it kind of rhetorically hanging. It's a bit cowardly. I think that's right. I mean, he obviously tries to say, you know, it's too early to tell. But it's interesting, first of all, I think that he places the left or or the remnants or the tail end of the new left or the inheritors maybe of the new left in the kind of new social movements. Um, or maybe we could put it differently and just say, you know, postmodern cultural liberalism and all its organs and agents. Um, he basically says that they're the new shapers of uh, the shapers and makers of the spirit of capitalism today and that they're responsible for whether that spirit or whether, you know, this kind of new form of capitalism is in some ways um, a better form of social organization, whether it, whether it represents some sort of progress or whether it's actually uh, represents retrogression, the kind of breakdown of a lot of things, the decline of leadership, which is something that we've talked about a lot on the podcast. Um, but anyway, I, I agree. He kind of, he kind of, um, um, you know, shits out of the tackle as it were, you know, he doesn't really go for it and doesn't attack. Is that, his, a, is that a phrase? Yeah. You know, when you're like in football where you're like, you, you, you kind of bottle it, you know, you don't you pull out of a tackle, you, of a tackle. You, don't, yeah. you don't shit out of it. Well, but. 
Okay, maybe my I was too <laughs> yeah. crude. Um, but you know that uh, he doesn't he doesn't really go for them, but uh, but he does kind of identify them as as the as the main agents of of the creation of culture, which I think um, a lot of kind of yeah some elements of the left recoil from or don't want to believe they don't want to they don't want to take on board the fact that the left is so responsible for transforming capitalism. Well, the hy- hyperliberalism, John Gray calls it, and I think this is. You know, this is this is the the current sort of spirit of capitalism. But anyway, I I think you had a well, no, exactly. So let's get on to that to to round this out. Um, What is the spirit of capitalism today? Um, Because there's obviously a spirit of capitalism that emerges in which uh, is made to create subjects adequate to um, and that fit into the new consumer society in which desires are unleashed and you're meant to go out shopping and whatever. Right? That's something that was. already being shaped in the 1960s and which uh, went far further, I think, than they ever expected. It was a consequence of the new left. What do we think is emerging today as a means of giving meaning to people's lives um, and creating, in fact, you know, even creating subjects today? Um, what is it? is it? Is it still, are we still in that same spirit of capitalism that emerged post the 1960s or, or is it something else today? No, I think, I think it has gone under, it has undergone some pretty, pretty important shifts i mean i think it's one thing just even recently is obviously what's the post-covid spirit of capitalism going to be i think obviously this is a kind of world historic event that you can't really criticize zaretsky for not talking about but i think it it does it does lead to a difference in the way that people conceptualize themselves and understand themselves and it's it's maybe a move back from this kind of interior focus of psychoanalysis psychoanalysis you know maybe has that 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 strength and also that weakness to now potentially this kind of view of ourselves again as as um as animals as as kind of objects that can go along and and bump into other objects and infect them regardless of our subjective um understanding i mean and that's a that's a um that would be as in some ways a departure from the kind of high bourgeois like aspirations of, of psychoanalysis and, and other spirits of, of capitalism and quite, a I don't know, quite a, an anti-human. Um, well, it would, it, it would be, it would be an, a, a direct attack or, or um, reversal of psychoanalysis contribution to our understanding of autonomy. I'm not sure it makes, I mean, you know, so I think it, that is such a, it's such a kind of a, an alien concept to um it's not really you can't really make sense of it in terms of psychoanalysis so zaretsky's whole i mean zaretsky's discussion is based on understanding how various elements of psychoanalysis the tradition the theoretical tradition are some of them are given more prominence at different times are put into conflict with different aspects of it and different elements are brought to the fore in different contexts to serve different needs and it seems you know seeing people not as autonomous potentially responsible agents um but as just as animals you know there's no way to kind of make that consistent with um with the kind of analysis in Zarowski's book I do think we're still in the same era um and I think you know gender fluidity perhaps expresses this idea best is the idea it's more hyper individualized and you are free to shape your identity 
um, through, you know, which is defined essentially by consumption. I'm this person because I buy these kinds of things, because I m modify my body in these kinds of ways, because I associate with these other groups, because we consume the same kind of media. Um, but it seems to me we're still very much in that spirit of capitalism. It's become more, it's intensified, in fact, um, and that it's been taken to a new extreme of um, total of kind of unrestrained choice that seems to me to fit um, a particular kind of uh, consumerist vision of capitalism very well. I think that's I wonder, right. Though, is it, is it, but is, isn't there, has it reached the, a point of, of kind of, uh, self it's overreached this. yeah maybe i mean, I mean this is this is the, and, and, and if it has what happens does the individual get kind of disindividualized and disaggregated or is it a, i think maybe to see it as a swing to a kind of uh, a, a view of the collectivity is is probably like that would be a, a massive qualitative shift but i i just i feel like the that kind of dialectical like logic of individualization like there it has reached a point of um, of untenability, but I, I do take your point. I mean, that that, may, be the, really that may be the case. I think there's something just that, like as food for thought. One other thing that's going on is that in contrast to an enthusiastic following of desire um, and, you know, pursuing those desires through the market, through consumption and shaping yourself through it, that there's an increasing rejection and it's a rejection in that happens in terms of intellectually, in terms of not buying into kind of narratives, but also a rejection of all forms of organization, right? So even um, that that people don't believe in leaders at any at any kind of level, um, at any kind of level of society, and but that might be you and your church no no longer believing your pastor, or it might be no longer, you know, believing politicians or following your boss or whatever. And so I think there seems to be a kind of disaggregation there of organizations, with, which is that would conflict with the resurrection of charismatic leadership. Well, ex yes, which is exactly. Different, you know, which is a striking difference with the previous era. No, absolutely. Maybe, maybe in some, maybe in some ways it ends up uh, op opening space for return of charismatic leadership precisely because um, other forms of um, yeah, I guess other, other forms of like integration organizations uh, yeah. don't happen anymore. That would make sense. I mean, atomization and charismatic, charismatic leadership would, um, would fold together very effectively. Okay. Um, I think we will leave this here. Uh, I hope you have found that interesting. I hope you've liked the reading. Um, I, Phil and I certainly did. I think George also appreciated it to a certain degree. Uh, so we hope you join us next month. We'll announce the date uh, shortly, but to tell us what it'll be about, I'll pass over to Phil because it's his one. Yeah. So it's an article in the journal Critique by Mike McNair. Um, who's a legal academic at Oxford, and it is about, he traces some of the authoritarian aspects of today's left and um, what's called cancel culture or woke, uh, you know, woke politics, traces it back to the popular front politics of the interwar period. Essentially, he roots it in Stalinism. So it's a tremendously intriguing idea that we can read today back into the past that deeply. So that's the next reading. Great, calling the woke Stalinists. That'll be fun. Um, well, we'll be doing more seriously than just that. That's it for now. Catch you later. Bye-bye.